Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon, members of the food and agricultural community. I'm your host, Matt Wilson, and we have a cracking episode for you guys this week. For those of you that don't know me, I'm a graduate working in the food industry, and like Indiana Jones explored the tombs, I explore the world of the food industry and interview distinguished guests on their career in the industry. This week, we welcome Barbara Bray, MBE. Barbara's a TEDx speaker and director of her own consultancy business, Allo Solutions Limited, driving and delivering food safety and food supply chains and improving nutritional quality of recipes and menus in the food service sector. So with that, we welcome Barbara onto this week's podcast. Welcome, Barbara. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm so glad glad we've actually managed to do this because we've actually I was we were talking before this actually but we've basically had to reorganize this five times because of various reasons one of them being British traffic <laughs> <laughs> well who knew that when they opened the doors on the 12th of uh, of April, everybody would just take to the road and block the streets drinking coffee all day. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I don't think we could have expected anything less from the British population than opening beer gardens and there being a lot of traffic. So you'd probably think with all the beer, maybe they'd actually limit the drink driving. But <laughs> thank you for coming on the show. It's going to be, I think this is going to be a really good episode. But um, so the normal format is I'm going to take you through sort of your career from what I've like discovered. And we're going to just talk about that with a bit of few like fun questions about just sort of your childhood foods and stuff like that so with that are you ready to start this i am ready perfect so i guess we start at university because that seems like a good place to start because we're all graduates on our mdf scheme so i guess so what i found out is basically you've got a bachelor's in food technology a master's in post-harvest technology and a master's in food uh, human nutrition and you're a registered nutritionist with the association for nutrition and a fellow of ifst so i guess actually i'd be interested in what ifst is just to start would you be able to sure ifst is the institute of food science and technology so when I started my BSc, they had a great student program. So as soon as you start your degree, they want to engage with you and make sure that you join up there and then. And they've kind of got you for life at that point. It's a journey that they, they take you on. But the IFST is great because not only does it provide you with a kind of postgraduate network. So once you go into the world of work, it's a, another place that you can go to meet other food professionals. It also is a reminder about continuous professional development. So back in the old days, when everything was face-to-face, there would be regional events that you could go to. And I went to some great things. I remember when I was working up in Yorkshire, there was a trip to the Betty's factory, and I'd never been into a tea or coffee factory before. We got to do tastings, and we got to see the massive packing hall where they blend all the teas. And I just remember being struck by a massive mural on the side of the wall, which was a tea plantation. So they'd blown it up into more than life size, so many meters high, and it was all green tea and ladies picking the leaves, and it all looked so idyllic. And I thought most factories you go into, and you know they're fresh and they're clean, but you don't have anything inspirational or lovely to look at. So, but yeah, it was great because you, you know, back in those days, and I'm sure they'll start again. You could go around and do visits to other factories, which is good if you're in a business that's quite small and you don't have lots of sites because what tends to happen is you get to know your site really well and you don't get visibility of other people's businesses. So by joining somebody like a group like IFST, it means you've got that connection. You can see what other people are doing. You can make new friends and colleagues and and just learn to improve yourself time and time again and also give back when you're slightly more experienced. You can help mentor and you can help work with 
newer people coming through the system. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, so obviously you've sort of gone on this sort of food nutrition. You've actually, I'd say probably post-harvest technologists, you've actually gone to a bit of agricultural sort of background as well. But like, did you ever think this was always going to be a career path that you go down? Or is this quite a um, spontaneous sort of decision in your life when you were young? I was always interested in food. But I think the problem is when you're a kid and you're interested in something, you don't really know the avenues to which to take it. So when I was a kid, I was like, well, what do people who work with food do? They're either chefs or they're dietitians. That's all I knew in my world. So my dad's a doctor, my mother's a nurse. So I'd heard of dietitians and that was really all I knew about contact and being able to advise people on food. And I think at the time, dietitian salaries were really low. My dad was like, you're not going to survive doing that. So I thought I have to look for other things. And I was really interested in experimenting with food and, and the science around it. So from very, very early age, I was doing things like making my own yogurt and I loved going to do little farming trips with my family. So we go to pick your own and we'd harvest raspberries and strawberries. And a lot of the people in my kind of local school and area grew up on farms as well. So I was very close to that nature side and, and seeing how food grew. Whereabouts did you uh, grow up, sorry? Ah, sounds an idyllic part of the country. So I grew up in Darlington. So it's just on the border of North Yorkshire. It's at the bottom end of County Durham. I'm, I'm, I'm a North Yorkshire boy as well, actually, but I'm from near uh, Helmsley, Helmsley Way, if hey, you know that. Yeah. Yes. Just on the border I of North did. Yorkshire Moors. <laughs> yeah, a beautiful part of the country. So, so yeah, I know that part of the country quite well because... As I was growing up, friends and, and neighbours and people like that moved to those areas and spent a lot of time there. So so growing up, it was an idyllic childhood in that I was able to kind of do lots of different things, go to clubs and, and really learn how to integrate in society really well and think I had that space and that encouragement from youth leaders and people like that to do whatever I wanted to do. And my school was brilliant in that they organised a careers event and said to me, well, who do you want to speak to? And I said, well, somebody who works in food. So they brought a food scientist and I didn't even know what a food scientist was. We were experiencing some technical issues while recording this week's episode, so apologies for the change in quality. So like, what did you learn mostly from like traveling around this? Because it's just, I, I learned that you've basically traveled around Singapore, Indonesia, Japan, Israel, UK, USA. So like studying this international food and farming system. So what did you sort of learn from this? I learned it was little lessons that are actually quite important because you think you know what you know about global agriculture. But actually what was really important and I had some penny drop moments as I went round. So, for example, I went to a meeting that was organised by the Australian Embassy and they invited Nuffield Farming Scholars and we were told about how the Australian Embassy were working in that country. And as the, the chap who was talking within the team was explaining about how they build relationships and work with people in country, I realised that in order to do business, it's all about people. So it's not about what you know about that country or being able to speak the language fluently. They're all tools that you use. But actually, it's being able to say, let's go for a coffee or let's go for a beer or let's go for a meal. And I was like, without saying it, he wasn't saying it like that. But reading between the lines, I was like, well, clearly this is how it must happen, surely, because he was emphasising the importance of getting to know people and getting their trust and building a relationship rather than this is how we get trade agreements done. And I was thinking, well, that's still part of the same thing, but actually 
is about people. And I think when I was younger and I was learning about business, I was always thinking about business being about compliance and doing the right thing. So you've got to do the right thing legally with food safety or financial restrictions and legality. It's all about thinking of the checks and balances, but actually the relationships that you build with people and how they think and how you interact and how you communicate are very important. So partway through my Nuffield Farming Scholarship, I realised that doing projects that are based on a single issue, yes, that's great, but you have to have a multidisciplinary solution. Just because it's a single issue doesn't mean that the, the solution is coming from a single source. And having people from lots of different areas or backgrounds is quite important. So you'll have scientists and consumers and marketers and producers, everybody working together. So to solve the problem, for example, of people not eating enough vegetables, it it's a whole supply chain and a food system that gets involved. It's not just a few growers saying, let's grow a bit more food. It's, you know, that you have to look at the whole thing because growing more food doesn't sell more food, doesn't convince people to cook and eat more food, and it can create, create waste. So it's lining everything up so that the problems that we've got will have solutions that are solved by a range of different means, not just one person's version of events. It's, it, it's all about the people and I guess like interestingly I guess I want to bring this sort of back but like you've, after all this international how did you sort of find this coming back to the UK after all your international work did it not want you to make you stay out there or you I want to come and apply this what I've learned back to my, where I'm from I think it, it taught me more humility I think as a British person you tend to think that we're the best at everything and I get that there has to be a level of national pride so when you go to other people's countries they'll always tell you what they're amazing at but I think in the UK we're slightly a bit arrogant with it so we might not be the best I think it's great to think you're competent at something but not when you see somebody's better at it and you still say that you're the best I think you know that that's just arrogant isn't it you know you've got to understand and accept that there's excellence and there's excellence isn't there if you see excellence in other places you you don't carry on saying that your version of excellence is a better version of excellence and sometimes we kind of assume that we've we've got all the answers and we have to be able to look at what we're doing and look at what other people are doing and say, well, can we take the best from what they're doing and learnings and, or can we collaborate and work with people? I think it's all very well having a certain aspiration to be in a political situation or a trade situation, but you have to earn those hard yards. You can't just say, well, I'm British. <laughs> That's a really cool scholarship, and I'm assuming this is something that's still running now, so it's something that people could consider who are on our course and stuff. And, um, Definitely. I, w I, w I want to pause again for another question for that, but uh, I guess let's go with what do you, is there anything you absolutely refuse to eat? <laughs> I'm a really polite person. I don't think there's anything I've ever refused to eat. And my dad, he's, he's very good at throwing things together, and as kids, we, we learned that the best thing was just to accept what was in front of you and not to question it. And that stood me in good stead because when you do go and travel in countries around the world, people will put things in front of you that's their delicacy or, or what have you. You don't want to be in a situation to say no. And I'm 
very fortunate in that I don't have any dietary restrictions, either from a religious or allergens or anything like that. So I can eat everything technically. But I think the only time where I've kind of pulled a face was when I was on my Nuffield Farming Scholarship and the, the host said, right, we're going to be on the road. We're going to pick up breakfast on the way to the farm. And I was like, well, that's fine. You know, that's what I'm used to doing in my career picking at breakfast, whether it's from a Shell petrol station or wherever. But the only place that was open was Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and I was like, how can you get breakfast from a donut shop? <laughs> so I actually went I without like breakfast. Would like that. I feel like the Americans would definitely love that. Dunkin' Donuts for breakfast. <laughs> I just refused because I thought, it's, I'm just going to feel rank the whole entire morning. So I'll just wait until we get to the house and they'll for me a cup yeah. of tea. I'll put a couple of spoonfuls of sugar in it and I'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> no disrespect to anybody who's a donut manufacturer or seller. Obviously, it's a great product. It's just not for me. I, I don't know if we have any donut company. I know we have a cake factory member who's part of uh, the, the MDS scheme. Uh, I think they probably, hopefully, they'd agree that breakfast with donuts and cakes <laughs> maybe not, uh, maybe not the healthiest lifestyle. <laughs> so um, I guess like we, I, I, I guess when we move on is uh, what I sort of just have next is you sort of you've done this Nuffield farming scholarship and you went to university and you had a, a lot you started to build quite a lot of experience and it seems that you went quite into like talking and doing a lot of talks and stuff which is sort of why I chose as a segment so I've got you as a director of the Oxford Farming Conference fellow of the Institute of Food Science and Technology and I think actually the one thing I've seen you in definitely is TEDx talks so it's led, and it's also led you to like doing stuff with the UN Food Committee for Food Security in Rome. Apparently, I think you might talk there, did you? I did. Yes, I've been invited a couple of times to speak in side events and. Uh, also on panels so it's been something that I always thought would be amazing to do when I was much younger but you never kind of imagine that that will actually happen and my mother reminded me the first time that I was invited to speak and I said to her I'm going to go and speak at the Committee for Food Security in Rome and she said you always wanted to do that when you were a teenager I was like did I <laughs> but apparently so <laughs> you sort of come into doing this then like what, was it a surprise when you got these invites or were you just sort of like or you knew it was coming sort of thing not really I mean I went into it through the Nuffield Farming Trust so what happened was Nuffield Farming got involved with Committee for Food Security private sector mechanism which brings people who are working in the food systems so that's either people who have their own farms or own food businesses or working in the sector so that they can have a voice and and really so that people who are organising events and panels and writing papers and pulling policy together can hear from people who are, are getting their hands dirty, for want of a better description. So because I attended the first meeting and talked about a few of the things that I was passionate about, they have a team who literally log everything, so who, who does what and where they are and what they represent. So when they need somebody to speak on a particular theme, they can instantly say, right, this person has got the background knowledge and will be a good speaker in X. So I was also sitting on the council or the group of people from the private sector mechanism who were supporting yeah. the draft of the voluntary guidelines for food systems and for nutrition. And that was really interesting because voluntary guidelines at UN level are supposedly voluntary but actually what happens is they do filter down into member states legislation so for example the eu will adopt the the guidelines and then various countries their their 
member states will adopt them and put them into the national law. So yes, when we were part of the EU, we used to think that our laws came from them, but actually there are some things that start off at a really international level before they even get to EU. And now clearly we do it the UK directly, but again, it's about having that voice and making sure that policymakers know what the constraints are of people on the ground and the various challenges and the benefits or the unintended consequences of policy, because it's all very well to say the food industry need to stop doing X and start doing Y, but how is that going to be implemented? And I think having people who work in industry to be able to feed their voices into the writing of the, the voluntary guidelines was, was really crucial. Because I think, uh, I found this is an amazing achievement, by the way, so congratulations on this. But um, I guess, uh, so this is more like, so our graduate scheme is very, like, uh, skill-related for us to build up skills. And I, I, I actually, I think you're such an amazing natural speaker. Have you always been a natural speaker? Has this been something, or is this a skill that you sort of had learned to develop over time? Well, I hate to break you to the bad news, but normally to develop any skill takes thousands of hours. So, and thousands of pounds. I, I don't even dare tell you how much I spent on, training and actually as a child I had extra lessons at school on uh, to help with diction and um, storytelling and speaking in public so I did that for three or four years did competitions and stuff so I was already starting from a good standard as an adult but because I did the Nuffield Farming Scholarship and I had to present to a room full of nearly 400 people I didn't want to be that person that didn't quite you know do it very well when you've got I don't know, another 19 people doing it well. So I decided to spend some more time and take lessons and learn about the art of public speaking so I could craft a really good quality talk for my Nuffield programme. So like, you obviously spent quite a lot of time building these skills up, which I thought were amazing. Like, you've obviously put a lot of effort into this. And like, how do you, do you still get nervous like speaking in front of these sort of large crowds that you talk to? Or have you sort of got used to it over time? Oh, I definitely get nervous. And it's funny, a good friend of mine, Caroline Goyder, who I was at school with, she runs her own business in training people in public speaking. And, and just before I did my TEDx talk, I went and had a chat with her because she did a, a TEDx talk that's had over 8 million views. So I thought, right, I'm going to call Caroline. And, and she <laughs> said, you will always be nervous. That's just how it works. And I said to her, well, when you did your TEDx talk, you didn't look nervous. And she said, I was absolutely trembling. But she said, I'd rehearsed it and rehearsed it so much. It was like it was a conversation and her body language also looked so natural. So what I realised was that when you craft a talk, so if somebody wants me to speak for half an hour, an hour, I will spend days going over and over it. So I'll go out for a walk in the morning, I'll be going through and I'll say it out loud so passers-by will think I'm talking to myself, but I, I keep rehearsing that so that when I'm in the room, I'm not having to think about what I'm saying. I've already got those words and those thoughts in my head. And I've still got access to be able to do that on an impromptu basis, but it's more natural and I can concentrate on my stance, position and breathing technique to make it look like it's a relaxed flow of a conversation and I'm not thinking on the next point and that type of thing. So it's, it is learning a skill. It's like learning to drive. You have to go through all those hours of honing that skill over and over again and you won't lose the fear, but you will get the techniques to make it deliverable in the same way over and over and over again. I think that's such a good tip actually just for anybody really like it's just almost like the practice makes perfect as a lot of people say isn't it that's totally I mean there's no shortcut to excellence sorry to break it yeah, to you <laughs> but I think 
that's a valuable lesson. And I kind of, I, I think um, I'd recommend, honestly, anyone uh, who's listening to actually go and have a look at Barbara's uh, TED Talk. It's, it's right at the top of the YouTube page of Type Barbara. So I'd definitely have a look at that. It's a really interesting talk. So I think, like, coming to the end of the talks, I guess I'm going to go on to the n- next fun question. But um, what, is, uh, what is your most bizarre piece of food you've ever eaten? Bizarre piece of food? I think... Because I'd imagine go travelling around, you would have had a lot of uh, weird, weird foods. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's what we call weird. And I was having this conversation with somebody the other day because she was saying that when you go somewhere, for example, the Far East, and you have breakfast, I mean, we, we were actually talking about Brazil, how their cooked breakfast is very different to ours. But if you think about somewhere like the Far East, like China or South Korea, within all the regions, they've got completely different cuisine, never mind just in that country. But we think of, of breakfast at the moment as either a small pack of biscuits or cereal or something. But traditionally, we always had a cooked breakfast. And there are still countries where a savoury porridge or a bowl full of rice with, I don't know, some fish or something is a a meal and I remember the first time I had a meal like that for breakfast thinking how weird that was but obviously having fish and rice is not weird it's just contextually about what time in the day but actually I realized that I prefer eating in that way where I eat a larger breakfast and a decent lunch and a smaller meal in the evening but it's almost the opposite of how we eat in the UK because if you go out for an evening meal you're going to have a couple of courses and some alcohol. I'm completely the opposite. I'll wake up in the morning and I won't eat anything till about one o'clock in the afternoon. I'll have yeah. a smallish lunch and then I will have a massive dinner, but that's how I move. It. But it's a bit of a weird one, I guess. Yeah, so <laughs> maybe, I'm still on, maybe I'm still on university ways. <laughs> maybe, but I, you know, from the moment that I was able to eat like that, I realised that that suits my body type better and that suits my lifestyle. And I've always tried to have a decent breakfast because that works for me. And I know it doesn't work for everybody. I've never say to anyone to change their you know the way that you are is the way that you are if somebody says have breakfast it doesn't necessarily work so for me that def that model was definite but you know my sister was saying to me the other day rice for breakfast I was like yep that's what I really enjoy <laughs> coming to the last sort of bit of your career and I'm going to sort of combine these two sections and stuff but firstly I want to say congratulations on your MBE so you've received an Thank MBE you. which I think is such an amazing achievement Um, So how did you feel about receiving this? A little bit overwhelmed because it's not like something you plan for, because normally what you would do if you're going for an award, you put yourself forward for it and you know the work that you've done and you know why you're doing it and what have you. But when somebody does it on your behalf and you don't know about it, a bit out bolt out of the blue so and as well I was in that kind of mind frame at the time where I was a bit like a hamster on a wheel I was just doing stuff because I I felt I had to and when you're passionate about something and making a difference you just do it you don't think about awards so obviously when I got the awards I was really surprised and everyone was really congratulatory and it was brilliant because it makes you realize that you know, it's not just about you. There are so many people in your circle, right through from school and university and all your your work and career and organisations and associations who helped you to get where you are. And it was almost a way for me to say thank you to those people and share that, that pleasure with them because so many people were really happy for me. And it was great to see that joy and, and be able to say to them, thanks for being one of my supporters and believing in me. So I've had some great... Yeah 
mentors in my time, people who've been advocates and sponsors and people who've just done things for me without asking. Sorry to interrupt, but you sort of linked me into a question that I was going to ask you, but could you tell me so about what your, was there anybody you can really think about who was a role model in your life that like helped you, helped you get to this point? Oh, I had plenty. I think from a young age, I mean, your parents obviously mould who you are, but I'd also look at what my dad was doing. My dad is a doctor. He did a lot of research and travel. And I always used to think that was a really glamorous thing to do. With doing research, you're helping solve problems and finding solutions to help people. And obviously with health, it's slightly different because you're saving lives. I mean, with food, it's not quite the same thing, but it's still useful. And I think I always had that that big idea about travel. Then I had an aunt as well who was really good on the education side. She ran her own school and she'd been in education for years and years. So I always had that that thing in the back of my mind that education was important. But as I went through life, you obviously pick up role models and mentors. So my first work mentor was a lady who was who was based in, I think, um, our European office of the business I worked for. And she taught me a lot. And she's a you know somebody I was friends with for all of her life. She sadly passed away um, a few years ago. But people like that, they, you know, the mem- her memory stays with me all the time. She was absolutely amazing. And a couple of years later, after I met her, I had a female general manager who I'm still in contact with today, who has also been brilliant and very supportive. So I've had female role models and also men who have helped me just by, I think sometimes they don't even realise that they've helped me where they might have seen somebody, not necessarily picking on me, but making life difficult. And they've kind of stepped in and said something or done something that's just made my life immensely so much easier and, you know, just give me that space to develop. And half the time, they probably didn't even know what they'd done. They just did the, the decent thing. I think in the last year or so, when we've been hearing a lot about polarization and bullying and all this type of thing yeah. and racism, I think it's important to realize, especially for men, that women in the workplace, sometimes they just need a helping hand, not to do the work, but just to give them space to breathe and then they'll do yeah. the rest. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so I've got some great male role models who, who may be realize that you should always look for the people around you and see where you can help them and and move them forward as well i think generally that's how like a good workplace works that you just have to look out for people in your workplace and generally that increases teamwork productivity and it makes people feel more comfortable so they'll do more work you know that's the best their ability really yeah. and it hopefully should be a standard across society and what just the, not just the workplace <laughs> it should be but we know that it isn't i mean i've been to workplaces where they're quite autocratic the person at the top especially if it's a family business make all the decisions and everyone else runs around implementing it Um, or others where there's a pecking order and that could be a societal thing where people from a specific location or a specific family feel that they're better than everybody else in the factory or the business and you just think oh my word you know and I've got to chew through all this before we can get any work done but it goes back to what I was saying about understanding the people because you can't go in even as a, a senior manager and start making demands and giving out instructions you have to know who the influencers are where the levers are and who can influence change and implement change before you even open your mouth <laughs> yeah i guess like i want to sort of link this in sort of but like oh because i want to bring it back sort of to your mba again if that'd be right mm-hmm. um what difference has this sort of made to your career then like did it has it, has it increased a lot of your um availability options elsewhere or is it um has it just been more of something that you've really enjoyed to receive and then felt really good with um you mentioned obviously it's nice that your colleagues had obviously supported you in this 
Definitely. It gave me that opportunity to really enjoy being with people and saying thank you. But it's also given me more visibility. So people will now say, I'd like you to join the panel for this or speak on that. So that definitely happened. And I think when you get an MBE, people realise that you're committed to public service. <laughs> I get a lot asked to do a lot of free things as well, which is not a problem if I can fit them into my diary. But it's just it's just brilliant to be able to give back because so many people have contributed to where I got to today. I could never personally go around. I mean, a lot of them have passed away given my age, obviously, people who were there when I was a school child. But, you know, I think if I'd give anybody any advice, and you can't give children advice, but it is to thank your teachers and the people who are running those youth groups selflessly. I did everything from girl guides to after school sports to St. John's. I, I, I did the lot. And all those people work for free and the goodness of their own hearts. And they get, you think, what do they actually get back? <laughs> None of us said thank you. <laughs> I, definitely, I definitely agree. I think one of my friends I was chatting to her the other day, she said she's gone on to do a PhD now and she went back and thanked her biology teacher from back in the day. And the oh. teacher replied saying, like, this is the most like, heartwarming thing ever. And it's not because they never hear how you do after they teach you. Yes. I think they really enjoyed that. So I think with that bit, I think we're coming into the final bit of the podcast and because I think we're running a bit low in time now. But uh, I guess the one that I always end on for the fun questions is, what's your vegetable of the year? (laughs) (laughs) I really love broccoli. It's one of those vegetables that is so great. You can put it into anything. And it's the feeling it gives me if I'm feeling like I just need a boost of green. If I chew on some broccoli and if I make a broccoli coleslaw, I just feel instantly better. This is great. We've got a league. I've sort of done a bit of league going on, but I think we're two broccolis to one aubergine at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) So I I, I guess on the final notes, I'm going to just... Well, I'm going to catch people up to where you are now, and I yes. think it's your working for Allo Solutions Limited. Am I right? On that That's one? right, it's yes. A, it's a consultancy firm. So, like, I don't know if you could briefly sort of just cover what you do and, like, mm-hmm. what do you reckon your biggest success factor is about where you are right now? So, yeah, so Alice Solutions is my own business that I set up. So after I left working for, I was working for a a business for about 15 years and I left there, set up my own consultancy and I wanted to focus on food safety really and helping people implement food systems so that when they're selling to retail or selling into the food service sector, they they know that they're in control and not going to cause any harm. And I think that that's quite a huge piece of of what we do as, as food safety professionals. But because I spent so much time working on the food specifications and looking at nutrition labeling and that type of thing, I didn't want to lose that. And I still wanted to have that that foot in nutrition. So I, I looked at including nutrition consultancy as part of my offer. But it was only when I got back from my Nuffield Farming Scholarship and I thought, well, actually, I'm limiting myself. What I really need to be looking at doing is that nutrition strategy, because now I'd seen how working in a multidisciplinary way is really good. The importance of nutrition as a sustainable part of the programme. So not just thinking about nutrition as a single discipline. How does the advice that we give to food manufacturers or food service 
affect the the supply chain, for example, of people buying foods that are causing harm yeah. in other areas. So I really wanted to use the skills that I'd learned around that to help advise people on their product development and on their strategy for nutrition. So that's really been my biggest success. I did a, a mini workshop back in, I think it was 2018. And um just to get some ideas around how I could do that. And then I did a, a workshop for a company in 2019 and followed it up with a talk that I did last year. And that was really helping me to just put a toe in the water and seeing what kind of things people wanted to learn from sustainable nutrition. And since then, I've been able to work with clients on it. So people have been coming to me and saying, well, what can we do to improve the nutritional quality of our product? But within that sustainability piece. So that's been my biggest breakthrough. And I haven't had loads of clients yet, but again, it's that slow burn of building things up and, and layering on that experience. Be, it must be very rewarding having like started this company and after your career you've had so far, it must be like a nice point to be at. And it sort of links me on, but what would you say your future ambitions are on this, with this? I do want to develop more in the nutrition and policy space. So we'll be doing some research probably towards the end of this year that's going to take me into that direction. And yeah, really help me get into companies and, and help them solve certain problems that are not just about maintaining their margin, but also about doing doing good and looking at human capital and how we can be more sustainable across, per, you know, from a purposeful point of yeah. view. So economics and the ethical side and so on. So, yeah, that's what I want to focus on. I think, I, I think that's really good. I, I hope to follow your career very very closely and see how we do it would be great, great to keep in touch definitely after this podcast oh, of course. um and i guess like i've, I've this, we're, we're right at the end now and i'd like to just do my final question and you may actually disagree with me on this you might say it's good if you could have done one thing differently in your career what would it be i think i would have been braver because i was very compliant in that i never thought it was a good idea to rock the boat and looking back, I'm looking at some of the, the young black women who are coming through the system. And I think it's not fair that they've had to fight the same fight that I did. And I think especially for women in general, I just feel that we put lots of things on women. So we expect women to be able to work, have families, grow their careers and do all the same things that men do. But something has to give. So I think it's about being kinder to yourself, but also removing yourself from a situation that isn't somewhere where you're going to thrive because life's too short so I think I really wish when I was doing jobs or roles that weren't right for me I'd kind of gone I've given it six months it's not working I can't see a solution I've done something about it I've voiced my concerns and nothing's happening so move on and I, I just think I was very slow at at seeing when things weren't just going to get any better. I was I'm quite a loyal person. I like to throw everything into fixing something and some things just can't be fixed. If it's not the right environment, it's not the right environment. And I give that advice to anybody. If you're really struggling and no one is throwing you a lifeline, that's not going to change anytime soon. So find somewhere I else. I think that's really amazing advice actually to end on because it's um, our grad scheme I don't know if I explained to you but we do like loads of six month placements around yes. different places and I think it's really good to apply that sort of uh, ideology to what we do as well so I, yeah no definitely and I think being brave is honestly an amazing thing so I think that's good that you said that to be fair and it's a good lesson learned for the end oh definitely yes <laughs> I think uh 
So I think on that note, I think we've actually come to our time. I think we've had a bit of hiccups with the lag, but um, we've, we've got there in the end. But I'd like to just thank you so much for your time. This is amazing. And I hope we can keep in touch in the future. Definitely. Oh, that would be fantastic. And I'd love to see where you get to with your career, obviously. <laughs> Don't worry about it. We'll see, we'll see. It's a slow progression, <laughs> slow progression. <laughs> uh, well, it starts with a podcast, who knows? <laughs> Best uh, of luck. Barbara, again, thank you so much for your time and I hope you keep in touch, but I hope you have a lovely rest of the week. <laughs> and you. So, uh, yeah, I hope your next podcast goes a lot more smoothly than this one. <laughs> I think we've slowly got there and I hope we can slowly edit it in together. So, if I mean, if it'd be possible, you'd send me the recording this, that'd be brilliant. No worries. I shall press end and uh, get it uploaded as soon as I can. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Robert. I hope to keep in touch. Thank you. Take care.